Hello, everyone. I'm Dana Stewart Bullock, and this is Transformational Therapeutics, the language of healing. In today's episode, I will be talking about archetypes. I will define, describe, tell stories, and explain archetypes in a way that is understandable and useful, i.e. functional. So welcome and enjoy. The subject today is archetypes, and I've chosen this subject because it just seems quite timely. It goes along with ritual and psyche and ceremony and fairy tales and story, and we've lost a lot of that in our culture. And when I look at the culture and what's happening on the planet today, it's sort of exploding and falling apart. And I believe that one of the reasons is because we've lost the connection to our archetypal backgrounds and to story, to myth, to all of that. So I just wanted to talk about archetype, where it comes from, what it means, and how it influences us. Mm, I love that. I'm excited for this. I'm going to be jumping around a bit because, again, it's a deep subject. And I'm talking about this in response to the fact that we've lost a lot of ritual in our culture and meaning. And without that, we tend to split apart. So I'm going to refer back. I did a podcast on psyche. And the word psyche refers to the human soul, mind, or spirit. And the word archetype refers to something that is archaic and typical. So as we talk through this episode, just keep in mind archaic and typical, archaic and typical. Archaic means ancient and typical means it has a form to it that is standard and that people can recognize. Hmm. And psyche is? Psyche comes from the Greek pushka, which means breath, life, and soul. Mm. So we're getting pretty deep here today. I'm just going to go into it. Let's do um, it. Because I love it. The word archetype refers to a constant fundamental form. So this is not going to be a physical thing. I'll bring it into the physical, but it's more of a, it's in all of us. It's in all human beings, the images that we all sort of recognize. So it might be conceived of as an energetic thing, but it's a fundamental form that's not only an image, but embodied in our bodies and anything that is ancient. Mm. It occurs in writings. The term archetype occurs in writings as early as the first century BC. So it's an ancient word in and of itself. It comes from the Latin and the Greek, and it means something molded first as a model or primitive. So again, it would be the background, like behind of us, like what makes us who we are sort of energetically. So I talked about the psyche, and I've talked at length about the unconscious, the aspects of ourselves that we're not conscious of, and that 90 to 95% of what we do is driven by our unconscious, if you go back to the previous episodes. But there's also a collective unconscious, and the collective unconscious is the unconscious aspect of civilization, of our culture, and that has an impact on us. So archetypes are actually universal images that have existed since time immemorial. They sort of exist, if you can imagine, separate from us, and yet they have an influence on us. It's almost like in the ethers. Hmm. And they have a strong religious or spiritual quality, and that it indicates the presence of some sort of divinity. And the word numinous is used because it has a quality to it that is numinous. 
First of all, if you think about cultures across millennia and across the world, many of the mythologies in all of these cultures are similar. The labels are different, but the actual stories are very similar. An archetype appears in our consciousness as a universal and recurring image, pattern, or motif, which represents a typical human experience. So these things reside in what's called the collective unconscious. They influence us, and they invoke... When you have an encounter with some sort of archetypal image, it invokes a strong emotional reaction. How so? Okay, so I'm going to tell a story. Please do. And I've studied this for many years, and because I don't have any sort of religious or spiritual background, I don't have any history of ritual or ceremony or anything in my background, I sort of hooked on to this as a way of guiding me. So 10 days ago, my Mustang horse got sick, and I came home that night and she was colicking. Some neighbors came and were helping me, and I had to call a vet. And the vet came, and so we're at about 9.30 at night now, and it's pouring rain, and it's pitch black out. And she's in agony, and I have two women holding her up, one with her tail and one with her head. And I have a neighbor who's a horseman who had sedated her and was listening to her bowel. Colic happens in the bowel, and it's an emergency. And so we're about two hours in, and this vet shows up, and she's very young. And she comes in, and she has a real attitude, and she was very negative, and she was saying that we should have called her immediately, and that the sedative that the horse had would ruin her diagnosis. She wouldn't be able to figure things out. And so we're all standing around trying to save this horse's life, and this vet comes in, and just totally negative, with a real face and an attitude. You know, I've talked in so many podcasts about postures and body language. So I'm not young, and this girl was very young. And with this attitude in this time, when we're all trying to save this horse's life, and I had to get over myself enough to protect my horse from the vet and her attitude and protect the other three people in the situation from the attitude. So we ended up transporting the horse to a vet hospital. And so we're now like 10 o'clock at night, and we get to the hospital, pitch black, and I'm thinking, what's going on here? And I turn, and this, again, a young woman with long hair is coming toward me from the parking lot, and she has a smile from ear to ear, and she says, are you Dana? And yes, and she opens up the area where the horses are in this vet hospital and turns the lights on and gets everything prepped in a stall, and four other vets descend also. Interestingly enough, all women, all with long hair. And my horse, Calypso, is led in and put in a stall, and the five women vets are putting in an IV, setting up an ultrasound, just taking care of everything. And I'm standing back with the two young women that had been helping me. And I stood there and watched, and we were there for about an hour and a half in total. And I've worked on a burn unit. I've been in the OR, been in ERs. And the form that this took of these five women descending, I use the word, it's like they came out of nowhere, taking care of my horse in a medical model, but so efficiently and with such courage. This is, She's a big animal. She was very agitated and upset. And they're putting deep lines in and just doing everything that needs to be done all taking me into consideration, smiling appropriately, all with this long hair. And I'm, I'm standing there watching this scene unfold, so grateful. 
that this expertise was helping my horse, but also their attitude. And I just thought, oh my goodness, they're like Valkyries. Valkyries are these Nordic women that are mythological. So that's where, that's an archetypal image that came to me as I'm watching these women. And at the point where it got to be too much, it was time. I talked to one of the vets and she said it was time. And so they sedated her and euthanized my horse. And we were all holding her, six of us actually, five vets and myself were holding her. And then the two other women were standing there. So there were eight women surrounding this gorgeous Mustang that I'd had for 26 years, absolutely adored, never expected to go like this. And it transformed everything, their attitudes, their kindness, their sweetness. In seeing them as like the Valkyries coming to help me, it just changed my state. It changed my feeling state. And that to me was an example of an archetypal image that came in and actually comforted me. And gave meaning to the episode, the situation, whereas the initial vet with her attitude and her negativity had given a different one. So I would not allow her to corrupt what was a sacred moment. There's nothing more sacred than someone being born or someone dying. And when we got finished and I went home and I kept thinking, Valkyrie, Valkyrie, what is a Valkyrie? I have no idea. I mean, it just came to me. So, of course, I looked it up as I want to do. It turns out that Valkyries were Norse death angels who hovered over battlefields and took souls of brave warriors into Odin's heaven. And that's an archetypal figure. And that's what these women look to me. They look like angels come down to help this beautiful being cross over. That to me is a practical application of this model. Absolutely. And that's a language. The first vet's language was negative and dismissive. And the five women just came in and comforted and held all of us and made a total difference to me for the rest of my life, to my horses crossing over, to the two girls that were with me. I mean, they just, in their actions and, and their attitudes. And that to me is them almost channeling this. It's an angelic force of helping someone cross over. Yeah. With almost a sense of taking charge, like ferocity, but a beautiful healing ferocity, which the the description of the Valkyries sounds yes. to me. The fierceness was required. And I and I in the midst of it, the head vet, she was a surgeon, she's a little tiny thing, gorgeous, you know, long blonde hair down to her butt. And I said to her, You are one ballsy chick. Because <laughs> she would just I mean, I'm not used to seeing women just take over like that. It was mm -hmm. glorious. I mean, it was horrible, but it was glorious. Right. And it just felt so big. And that, to me, is what an archetypal force... I forgot the exact question you asked me, but as I rambled Yeah, on, like how, how does an archetype create an effect within us? And, that, and, and they, they gave meaning to yeah. that situation yeah. by who they were and how they acted. Right. Whereas the first vet felt to me like she was taking the meaning away from it, and I wasn't going to let her. Yeah. So that's just an example. I'm curious, are there negative, for lack of a better term, archetypes? Well, most archetypes have two sides, the positive and the negative. Mm. And depending on which side you're exposed to under what circumstances, that's what you sort of absorb. Mm. Ideally, you want to be able to understand the two sides. Like, for instance, the archetype, I mean, there are so many, but the archetype of the mother, there's the negative mother and the positive mother. Mm. Too much of one is not good. Yeah. There's the nourishing mother and the devouring mother. Hmm. 
So they're two sides of the same thing. Wow. And we all know them. We do. I mean, when I say it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right. Well, it's just so interesting applying that to the experience that you had. It's almost like the, the first vet represented the complete opposite of what the Valkyries represented. So I was curious if she represented a negative side of, a, of an archetype that then the Valkyries came and counteracted. I, you know, I don't know. It's a really good question, Rebecca. It just felt like she was so small mm. that she didn't necessarily, wasn't channeling an archetypal force. She was just small. Right. Whereas the five of them were like, whoa. Yeah. And maybe it was in the number. I don't know. We're not supposed to, as human beings, we can't really tolerate archetypal forces. They're so huge. Hmm. I mean, according to all the literature, they're just too big. And so we tolerate them through stories and through mythology and through dreams. But in real life, they're big forces. We can apparently just tolerate little bits and pieces of them. Interesting. It's like the collective unconscious is this huge ocean that we're all in. And what we allow to come to consciousness within us, you couldn't possibly tolerate the hugeness of the forces of an archetype. Mm. So we get little glimmers. So Jung talked about personal unconscious, the contents of which is chiefly a feeling-toned complex. That's what he said. And they constitute sort of a personal and private side of the psyche. The contents of the collective unconscious are known as archetypes. So that's where they reside. And another expression of archetypes is in myth and fairy tale. Mm -hmm. So they all have common forms in all different cultures. And those are sort of archetypal forms, you know, like the king or the prince. But they're images that we all sort of know. Mm -hmm. If one doesn't understand these forces, what happens, and I think what's happening on the planet right now, because we don't have the mythology and the folklore and the fairy tales that are supporting us. They actually support us through life. It's really fascinating and through civilizations. And the great ones, I mean, great writings last forever. And, and they're, you know, even, I mean, religions have archetypal aspects to them. But when we don't have these rituals and myths, and I, I was listening to two different podcasts, separate podcasts, fascinating recently, totally separate. Both of them were talking about the need for a new mythology in this time hmm. and, and space, which I thought was fascinating. So fascinating. Yeah. Two totally different you know, subjects, they, uh, interviews that I was listening to. It's like, wow, that's interesting. Hmm. And some of the figures, the archetypal figures, they can wear out over time and we need new ones. They actually energize the culture. And what happens is when people are not in touch with them via mythology and stories, what puts you in touch with the archetype is the ritual and the mythology and the stories and puts you in touch with the collective unconscious because that's where the archetypes reside. Mm -hmm. When we lose that, dogma takes over. Meaning? Dogma is a set of like principles that is laid down by authority mm. that people take on through the authority that's around them. I mean, that's what's happening right now. Rather than being in touch with all of the richness of the stories and the history that we come from, we're looking at the dogma that's being sent down from on high from the political people and that sort of thing. And it's, it's dividing. I mean, it's, it's worldwide. I think worldwide, we're on the crux of some huge transformation on the planet. That is so fascinating, because if you think about just our ancestors... I feel like before we had the internet at our fingertips, you would then turn to stories and 
and your your generational stories and fairy tales for advice, for support, for guidance. And now it's almost as if we've switched to turning towards our phones, to Googling and looking for the answers there, which gives us facts. And we step more deeply into science and facts and things without And, the and that's what separates us from the unconscious because mm. the unconscious is sort of inside of us. It comes up from inside of us. And if you're looking outside of yourself for everything to your device or your computer or whatever, you're not getting the richness and the meaning right. that has come down for millennia. Absolutely. And I love that point because when you do think about, like, I feel like we all have experienced getting some meaning from a story or a fairy tale or some old teaching. And when you do, there, there's certain, at least I can speak for myself, there's almost a feeling of something inside of me lights up, that there's this truth that awakens that I know in my bones that, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. It's like one of the reasons Harry Potter was so successful is because those are archetypal figures. Dumbledore is an archetypal figure, the wise old, you know, seer, that sort of thing. All of those, the magicians, they're all archetypal figures. And the reason Harry Potter was so popular, because we have an, a need for that sort of story and connection. Yes, this whole time I've been thinking about Harry Potter, that it seemed like the whole world came alive a little bit with those stories and attached themselves so deep, so deeply to those stories. That explains the the deep meaning and, and movement I feel within myself when I read them. I have this, I don't know where it came from, in my writings. The nature of an archetype is that it's a force in the universe, in the collective, which carries in it meaning and direction. It carries within it a totality of meaning. It's holographic, directive, and inherently paradoxical, which means that's the nourishing mother and the devouring mother, the two sides of everything. It's a form or a force one can dip into, depending on your level of understanding. And once it's glimpsed, it provides answers and understanding as well as meaning. And I think we've lost a lot of meaning in our culture these days. Jordan Peterson, I don't know if you know who he is, he said, cognitive and perceptual architecture is grounded in archetypal stories that are inescapable and of ultimate value. They lay out the patterns, this is the point of them, of being that enable you to maintain nobility and sanity in the face of suffering and evil. Hmm. And so we've lost that connection. How else have we experienced in throughout our throughout cultures in the world to bring these archetypes into daily life or existence? So in particular, I have some Navajo friends and their culture is so ancient and yet so current and they have ceremony and beliefs and they acted out in a way that is mind-boggling to me to watch. It's it's brilliant. And it's an everyday occurrence every day. They live inside of those archetypal forces with their ceremonies and their rituals and their stories mm. and their medicine. And it's probably true with most indigenous cultures. The archetypal forces and the mythology is right there and being used functionally in everyday life. Sure. And we have lost that. In my travels and learning about this, what I see, an archetype is sort of a global, in, I'm going to define it as a global investiture of force. It's a force that one carries. And I've been playing around with it, A, with language, but B, just in my own work. So archetype is an archaic and typical form. 
when I would work with kids with cerebral palsy, if you look at their postures and their movements, they are very typical. You can see, or somebody who's had a stroke walking down the street, you can say, oh, that person had a stroke just by how their gait is. Mm. And these are aspects of the brain that are damaged that are archaic and typical. Our brains themselves are archaic and typical. And so I would see that they would carry these forces. And I remember when I lived in Manhattan, I was working with a child that was profoundly autistic and had mannerisms and postures and just very typical for the extremity of his autism. And then in my own building, on the other side of town, were a pair of twins, a boy and a girl. And it was really interesting because one of their parents was black and one was white. The kid I was working with was white. And these two kids, twins, boy, girl, had the exact same postures and mannerisms of the child that I was treating on the other side of town. Hmm. And I would get in the elevator and I would just look and think, I didn't know them, but the autism spectrum was clear as a bell. Hmm. And so I saw that as sort of an archetypal force that they came in with. Did that help you treat them, looking at it through that lens? Yes, it helped me treat, yes, it helped me treat the autistic kids that I've treated. Absolutely. Yeah. Because you're up against a force that is really ancient. And that's when I thought about language. That's when I expanded my definition of language because many of these kids don't have spoken language. And so you're looking more at body language and postures and behaviors to communicate. Right. And those are archetypal. If you're looking, for instance, at a horse. It's mannerisms, it's movements, they're archetypal on some level. That's what makes them a horse. Hmm. That's just sort of how I see the world. (laughs) (laughs) So Joseph Campbell talked about archetypes, and he said an archetype is a constant form, and it's a basic fundamental form, which are actually expressions of the structure of the human psyche. And so he also said, I thought this was fascinating, a dream is a personalized myth And a myth is a depersonalized dream. So both myth and dreams are symbolic in the same general way from the psyche. So a myth would be an archetypal story coming down and a dream would be similar from inside of your own psyche. So this is going into psychology and the psyche and the forces that actually in many ways are responsible for how we be. And I was once listening to, there's a a man I've talked about before. He's a neurologist, V.S. Ramachandran, out in California. And he talked about how story is what creates us. It's sort of a different way of looking, but it's an interesting philosophy. I love that. Can you expand on that a little bit? Well, you know, it's sort of a nebulous form. But if you think about in yourself... The stories that you came from, the stories that you grew up with, or the story of your own growing up, the story of your own being is a story. And many times, therapeutically, people will say, well, change the story. So there's some sort of physiological impact that these stories have on us that dictate how we see ourselves and how we see the world. Mm, So true. It reminds me of Brene Brown's teaching on when you're in a disagreement, we'll say, with another person, she says to look at it as what's the story you're telling yourself 
from what this person said. Like, what are you basically, what are you making it mean? But what is the story you're telling yourself about what this person said? And then go back and what is the story that they're telling themselves? And it's oftentimes it has really nothing to do with the other person. It just has to do with exactly what you just said. I think it's so important in terms of meaning in this time on the planet, you know, with the climate changing and all the chaos and everything, I look for meaning. And so, for instance, the story I just told you about Calypso, and maybe I've created it, to find meaning in her dying. If nothing else, she taught me to see differently her crossing over. She had an influence on these vets. We all did. So these stories give meaning to our lives. Absolutely. I mean, that's why we love reading Harry Potter or any myth. That's why there used to be storytellers in every tribe. And I mean, we've so lost that connection to our origins. We have. And yet it's also interesting to look at the culture of podcasts have grown. And there's a lot of storytelling that goes into pod. We're, we're craving listening to people share their stories. We're craving to open up YouTube and watch someone tell their story. So it is, it's interesting because I feel like we're, that, that need is still there and we are still seeking it. I think the need will always be there and we'll always be seeking it. Yeah. But I just think that this is such a time of disruption and change. I'm not sure what the outcome is why it's happening on the planet now. Mm. And it may just be in all of this disruption, it's time to create new myths and new ways. I mean, w with all the technology and everything, we need myths that, that explain it and, yeah. and support it. Absolutely. Well, I mean, it makes sense. It's kind of like the, the old fairy tales and mythology don't have the capacity to offer us the advice and the support that we need in a world that's so deeply connected through social media and the internet and everything. So it's like we need a new myth to support what we have grown in a world of science and facts and things at your fingertips and instant gratification and knowing the story about knowing everybody's stuff that they post on Instagram and Facebook and wherever. So yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot that goes with that. We don't have those stories to turn to for to seek guidance. We don't have the way of seeing symbolically, which is a lot of what ritual is about. We don't have the rituals. We're speeding along so quickly. And many of the rituals that we do have are, are sort of shreds of what they were originally, mm. you know, hundreds or thousands of years ago. And when you do the research, you see, I mean, there used to be, I was reading the book, The Red Tent. Mm. And it was about women hanging out in a tent when they were menstruating for, you know, days at a time, just women talking and telling stories. And that's an ancient ritual that we have lost. Yeah. And particularly now, when you see what's happening in our particular culture in the United States, I also symbolically, the feminine is an archetype, so is the masculine, and ours has been a very patriarchal society, and things are shifting, and it's fascinating watching what's going to happen to women, and particularly young women, over time. And young, um, young men, too, for that matter. Right, right. And I thought this was fascinating when I was researching this about symbolism and archetypes, and archetypes are there to organize chaos, actually or symbols are. This was a statement I just thought was brilliant. The king and queen in England, king or queen in England, are symbols. And they would never submit to the parliament because they're symbols. 
and people submit to symbols. I mean, look at how people just love the king, the queen right now, the queen, you know, they'll do anything for the queen and they want to see her. And, and that's the importance of a symbol. It stands for something more than just political rights or considerations. So you have Boris Johnson, or you had until a few days ago, and then you have Queen Elizabeth. And she can do no wrong in many ways, and he is now out of office. So his is more of a typical, functional, practical role, and hers is much more symbolic. Interesting. And I think that's why that family has stayed there for so many centuries. So she, that symbol, stands for sort of the archetypal sense of the self. A symbol unites things. So people unite around the queen. I mean, look at her jubilee. And again, I'm going to refer back to Harry Potter when you just think about all the symbolic language in there. Oh my gosh, And when you dig even deeper, how she figured all of that out and used it in the story itself. Absolutely. Even the bringing in the fairy tales into the story itself and using the fairy tales in the last book to further tie the entire thing together. And she talks about how there's wizard fairy tales that you can right away recognize, even though there are these foreign names and these foreign subjects, you still recognize them like, oh, wow, yeah. And, and um, Fox, the, the the phoenix. Yeah. I mean, his role, I mean, she just blended it so brilliantly. And I don't, you will know, whichever one was the dog, the three-headed dog. Oh, oh, in the first book. Right. Fluffy. Which was based on the myth of Cerberus, which is a three-headed dog from ancient Greece. I mean, it's just, it, but we ate it up. Yes. Because it's somewhere in our collective unconscious. It's there. And we, we were able to tap into it with her book. Hmm. And she used many different symbols and, and made it work in this. I mean, that's a myth that works in this time. Yes. So I, I, applying it to transformational therapeutics, we've gone off on sort of a tangent here, but... Knowing that it's there, that it's that these forces are in the background, that they drive us, that they're there for us to see them is, I, I just think, so important. So if you're particularly looking for meaning in a situation, looking at the symbolic language, just like the story I told you about the vets. So when you're looking for meaning about something that has happened or perhaps is happening, what about in the future? Like if you're trying to figure out which path to take, and you're not sure where to turn to figure that out, could archetypes help with that? I'm always asking myself in the instant, like, what is the symbolic meaning of that person? So you look at Queen Elizabeth, and she is a a symbol of unity that we all have the want for. So I compare her, for instance, with Donald Trump. There's a a huge difference, because somehow internally she is not divisive. And he is. They're actually, it's interesting, sort of two sides of, they're both leaders, so it would be two archetypal images. Because when you're elevated to that status on the planet, you take on even bigger forces. Mm. I mean, in many ways, when I think about the collective unconscious and these archetypes are in there energetically, and you look at history, and you see something that carries a big force... That's an archetypal force. When you think about Hitler and what he did, that's an archetypal force, I would have to say, of evil. Big figures carry big forces or big energies. And we look to them for meaning. And oftentimes, the meaning that they provide is not necessarily for the good. 
I mean, just the figure of a king or a queen. I mean, there are so many religious figures, you know, prophets. These are all sort of archetypal figures. And the archetype itself is there, interestingly enough, to counter the force of chaos. Mm-hmm. When you're looking for some sort of psychic order in yourself and you look to the collective, we are in a time now of absolute chaos. There's not a lot of order. And the order that there is, is limited and, and divisive. You know, the planet itself, because of climate change and the unknown, and if you just step back and look at what's happening, there's a lot of disorder and chaos. And we don't have the stories and the mythology to help us go forward, basically with hope. Mm. We're just stuck in this divisive, everybody's at each other's throats time. Right. And I'm sure there have been many times like this in history. Absolutely. I just never lived in one before. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. We are just conscious and alive in this moment, experiencing it. Yeah. Also, I feel like great stories have those climaxes, those moments of it feels like there's no hope until something happens where hope comes in like that every great story has that low has that that place of desperation or it seems like all is lost and then something happens and it changes and so and there's often times in every great story a big battle a big tumult Mm -hmm. a big you know happening before everything then regroups into another form right and it feels like that's what's happening on the planet absolutely and to me like looking at it through the lens of this conversation Knowing that already, even though we don't necessarily have the current mythology to help, knowing that that is a thing is provides hope that, oh, okay, we're just in the midst of that story when everyone feels like there's no hope and we don't know what's going to happen and it seems like all is lost and then it always does pass and there's always something, there's always greater meaning that comes later. And I think it's important for us to to look for that greater meaning mm-hmm. while we're in it. Yes, 100%. That can provide immense hope and guidance and growth in the midst of struggle. So we don't have to wait until the end to look back and do that healing. We can do it in the mid. And, and also for yourself to look at what possible archetypal forces are in charge in you right now. Is there some place you would recommend in looking for specific archetypes? Like, can you, are there a specific number of archetypes or are they, do they kind of vary between studies or cultures or, or whatever? Joseph Campbell was interviewed by Bill Moyers many years ago. And the name of the show was The Power of Myth. And he talks about different cultures and religions and the commonality amongst them mm. and the different figures. But that's a really good place to start. Mm, that sounds great. And then he also talks about, he was good friends with George Lucas and Star Wars, and the symbolism of those stories. So that's one way of connecting. And he talked about needing new myths also. This was in the 80s. Right. But it, I think it's on YouTube. I'm not sure, but it's accessible. Yeah, that's And a really great. good place to start. That's, yeah, that's another story that a lot of people connected deeply with right. <laughs> Star Wars. Right, right. Yeah, interesting. Well, thank you, Dana. I think this conversation was really powerful. Well, I hope it had an impact because I think it's a really important subject. And even if you're not understanding or thinking about archetypes, just think about bigger forces and finding meaning in what's happening. Absolutely.
If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to subscribe if you haven't already. Leave us a rating and a review. And for any of you who have done that already, we are so grateful. I would like to say that I'm thankful for you tuning in. And I would love to hear feedback. If you could email me at transformationaltherapeutics at gmail.com and give me feedback on the podcast, perhaps suggest subjects that you would like me to cover in the future. And when I receive that feedback, I'd love to highlight and publicly thank whoever has sent it to me. I really enjoy sharing this with you. 